0: Welcome to Perspectives, a new podcast series taking a big picture look at issues of importance to Canadians with leading experts to help us navigate those issues. Perspectives is an evolution from our previous podcast called Pandanomics, where we examined the economic impact of COVID-19. Now we're widening our lens to examine broader topics, from the economy to the housing market, from the environment to women in sports, from the stock market to the role of a bank in the community, and much more. My name is Stephen Reese. I'm the editor of Scotiabank Perspectives, and I'll be your host for this exciting new series. So we recently had a federal election that didn't change the makeup of the House of Commons much, but could still affect the dynamics that drive economic policy. And we have an economy that seems to be ticking along pretty well, but with a few clouds potentially on the horizon, or I don't know, maybe even overhead already, I'm not sure. To dissect all that, I'm joined today by Jean-François Perrault, Chief Economist at Scotiabank, known to one and all as JF. JF, thanks for coming. Always a pleasure to talk to you and to hear your insights. My pleasure to you. So we won't dwell too much on the election, or at least on the campaign. 35 days of uh, yelling at each other. And then it returned a house that was almost identical to the one that was there before. But there were a lot of promises made and by the Liberals as well as the others. But the Liberals are the ones sitting in the power seat now. But they will need the NDP or the bloc to support them to get anything done. So how do you see it playing out? What do you think the government's economic priorities Should be, and what do you think they will be uh, if there's a difference between those two things? And I suspect there is. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, Listen, uh, you're right. Key question is
1: that we're thinking about in the next few weeks is how the new government is going to be changing its approach to economic policy relative to what they've done in the past. And it's not clear that we're looking at dramatic change. I mean, you know, the key policy, the key priorities prior to this were climate change and childcare, generally speaking. I find it very hard to believe that the Liberals would, would change tack on that dramatically uh, in the course of this mandate because I think these were policies that resonated well with Canadians and obviously in line to some extent with uh, the NDP uh, view of, of these things, not entirely, but, but closely. So that's, um, you know, there isn't really much different there. Now, they've announced a whole bunch of little things that they were going to do that add up to a few, you know, a few billion dollars here and there. Um, but those are those are the two big ones where things are a little bit trickier is, you know, I think facilitated in part by the conservatives who you know, clearly shifted left during the election or prior to the election and, and through their platform, which I think made the liberals adjust and shift a little bit left and, and go closer to where the NDP was on a range of issues. So the thing that we're perhaps most watchful for as we think about policy over the next over the next few quarters, couple of years is. You know how is that leftward shift going to translate into uh, economic management? So what what are they going to do? Are they going to ride this wave? Are they going to think about doing things a little bit differently? Are they going to have to, uh, you know, piggyback on NDP policies more aggressively than they have in the past, or is the NDP going to have more influence over how uh, the Liberal government takes things forward? It's almost certainly to be true, and we have elements of that, you know, already if you want in, in the context of the campaign, which is. Um, you know, to the extent that this is potentially meaningful from a broader perspective, you know, their approach, for instance, to the taxation of banks and insurance companies, where they've decided to raise corporate tax rates from 15 to 18 percent on on banks and insurance uh, companies. Um, that, you know, obviously was, I think, a reasonably popular uh, move for them to make. I mean, I don't think it makes a whole lot of economic sense, uh, but it was something they decided to do. And And whether this is you know, the first in a series of eventual moves along the kind of the taxation front, effectively making Canada a little bit less competitive, uh, effectively creating uncertainty in the business world and in the investment world. Um, that to me is 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 likely to be the, certainly the thing they're going to be most watchful for,
0: uh,
1: most thing will be most watchful for. And not, you know, from the perspective of kind of a commercial banker looking at higher taxes, but, you know, what signal is this sending to investors? What signal is this sending about the direction of economic policy? And, and so far, it's, it's a signal that's, that's more worrisome uh, relative to what they had on the table pre, pre-election.
0: Right. And there's likely to be that some additional pressure from the NDP, which is a campaign hard on sort of a tax the rich platform. Do you think the proposal around banks and insurance companies is, will, will that be enough to get the NDP on board, or do you anticipate there'll be quite a, there'll be pressure to go further along those areas that you're talking about that might send greater you know trepidation in in the business sector?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a good question. It's a political science question to a large degree. Uh, I think the threat that any party represents to Liberals really only uh materializes if they if there's no confidence vote and then you know eventually we go back into an election i'm pretty certain the ndp doesn't want to go back into election now nor nor do the Conservatives. so to the extent that you're you know there's a limit to how much of a kind of hostage-taking situation this is going to be i mean the liberals are going to have a lot more scope for implementing their own agenda in the short run than than perhaps people think is the ndp support is almost guaranteed to be there i mean they're not nobody's going to try and trigger another election because it Especially the NDP actually probably can't even afford it now. So,
0: or the block as well. The block is all. Or the there. block. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. sure. So you need just just need the one of them on some of the other platform elements. So around housing in particular, huge issue during the pandemic and ongoing issue. What do you think of their ideas around housing, and are they implementable? Will they will they have the kind of impact that that they would hope for.
1: So, I mean, one of the one of the great things about the election was a much better dialogue and uh, acknowledgement that there's there, there really needs to be something done on the housing supply. So all the parties had stuff on, you know, ways to make housing more affordable. And all of them had approaches to increase the number of essentially homes in Canada for 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 people to live in. Now the balance of those measures, I think, was by and large tilted to measures that Are designed to increase affordability so things like savings or down payments or reducing the cost of mortgage insurance and a few other things which those are definitely without any any question going to raise demand if you make things more affordable as laudable as objective as that is it's going to raise demand and if you if you don't marry that with policies that will very clearly increase supply then whatever temporary gain in affordability you have will just be kind of frittered away as, as prices move up. So the question really is, you know, are these commitments on, or are these, um, platform items on, on the supply side, likely to dramatically change the game? And, and there it's, it's entirely not clear. So liberals, for instance, had committed to, you know, building, repairing, uh, and there's something else, 1.4 million homes, uh, over the next four years which you know, is, is like it's a modest acceleration relative to the historical average on, on, on completions. I mean, that would be some progress, uh, but you know they don't, they don't control the housing supply. The housing supply is controlled at the municipal level. So they've got a policy or their intent, I think, is to run with some incentives to encourage municipalities to approve more rapidly, to permit development to uh, increase at a pace that's more in line with demand and, and demographic requirements. But it's entirely unclear that those incentives are actually going to translate into 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 more units. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then all you're left with is the measures of series that are going to raise demand uh, with very little impact on supply. And so, so you know, as we think about the platform um, and its implementation, uh, you know, we don't think there's a sea change here. We don't think that we're going to end up in a situation where affordability is dramatically improved over the next three four years. In fact, affordability is more likely to adhere because we think house prices are going to keep crawling up as a result of the supply-demand imbalance.
0: Yeah, because the supply part obviously takes a lot longer to implement. Plus, you know, as we've talked about it before, it, with levels of immigration likely to increase also over the course of the next year or two, you know, more competition and for for that housing and then driving, driving prices even higher. And then on the child, on the child care issue, well, you know, uh, Scotiabank has been very much in support of more availability of childcare, affordable childcare. The Liberals already had, I think, agreements in place with several provinces, which is very, very, very useful for them during the campaign. So, is that just is that just going to happen now? Do you think? I mean, that seemed to be like their primary. Been-
1: yeah, I mean, it's certain. Yeah, so it was. It was. I mean, it was happening pre-election, so they had commitments to. Uh, dramatically lower the cost of childcare with, uh, you know, some kind of version of a national childcare program pre-election. It seems clear there's going to be a deal with uh, New Brunswick and Ontario shortly. So you know, probably nine of the 10 provinces will have a deal with the federal government within a short little while. Um, That deal effectively represents a tremendous amount of funding going into childcare and across, across all the provinces that are signed. Um, hopefully that creates new spaces, hopefully that does reduce, effectively reduce the cost of childcare for a significant proportion of families, not all families, because there still is a shortage of childcare spaces. Um, and that, that, I think, is very, very meaningful. Um, you, know, you can debate as to whether you know, providing funding for government, provincial governments to roll out their own plan versus you know, providing tax incentives for individuals to take care of their own daycare. I mean, we'd probably favor a combination of both. But whatever's happening on the child care side now is is um you know dramatically better will be dramatically better than what was available a year ago, and that I think is is huge huge progress
0: okay so though the, those are two of the significant things that the liberals are likely to act on quickly I want to tie it back to you know your own sort of outlooks that you've done, the projections on on GDP and growth over uh, the balance of this year and into next year which you've scaled back somewhat just to tie the two things together are where Canada suffered from a, a productivity problem a you know very modest levels of growth problem you know over the last several years so it's going to be uh, you can correct me on the numbers but around 6% this year, but I think you're projecting back to like 3%, which is, you know, 50% higher than the 2% that we, that we got uh, that we got used to in previous years, but it's not barn burning either. So, like, what do you see in, uh, you know, what's going on politically and political programs that is going to likely to actually increase the levels of growth and, and prosperity in the country? I mean, arguably, childcare can help with that in terms of uh, uh, labor participation. But uh, what else do you see there broadly?
1: Yeah, so childcare obviously helps, but again, kind of like the housing supply issue, this is this is a slow-burning thing, right? You've got to put the money in the system. You've got to find workers. You've got to, you know, build new centers. So this is not this is not going to affect labor market outcomes next year or two. I don't think. So it's this is kind of a we'll think of it in terms of a structural development that raises our potential growth over a period of time, but not really meaningful in the short run. Um, but you know, coming back to the one of the key electoral issues, uh, you know, cost of living is kind of front and center. So we talked about it in the housing context, but there's a broader issue with respect to inflation in the country that is shared across the world. So Canada is by no means unique in that perspective. And that's where the intersection with the outlook, I think is pretty clear. So we, as you've indicated, we've taken down our forecast. We had 6% earlier, uh, well, pre-election. We're down to you know, slightly below 5 for 2021. We're in our 3.5% range for next year and about 3% for 2022. So for this year and next, it's a pretty significant scaling down of growth. Uh, and the result is, and that largely, I mean, all, it exclusively comes from um, a recognition that the supply bottlenecks that we're experiencing here and the Americans are experiencing, and other countries are experiencing, are having a more binding constraint on growth than we anticipated, and that's creating inflationary pressures, which is making things more expensive, which you know contributes to this to this you know political dilemma or political issue that, that featured in the election election to some extent. So really, it's it's uh, you know understanding uh, how these supply uh, blockages are affecting us, um, because the reality is when you look at factors that are fundamental and determining demand, so things like wages and, and commodity prices and, and uh, wealth and the housing market, all the things that you typically, low interest rates, fiscal policy, all the things that you typically looked at to give you a sense of where the economy is going to going or will go are extremely positive, like historically positive. So um, there is no issue on the demand side. It's really, you know, can we produce enough stuff? To meet the needs of Canadians, or to meet the needs of Americans, to meet the needs of Europeans, or or whatever whatever you may have, and and so as a result, you've got you you we're marking things down because you know no matter where we look. So if you look, for instance, in the shipping industry, there, are, you know, uh, record levels of ships waiting to be offloaded in ports around the world. Um, you know, there's a shortage of containers. Shipping costs are extremely like historical highs. Um, shortage of all kinds of materials going from steel to aluminum to oil in some extent to other commodity prices to other commodities, shortage of truckers in North America, shortage of truckers in Europe, um, shortage of chips. And that's all because demand is really, really strong and we're just, the production system hasn't quite been able to catch up with that yet. And and um, so you've got the speed limit uh, that is clearly holding things back to some extent, but that's temporary because as, as because demand is as strong as it is, you know, as we manage to ramp up chip production, as we manage to increase, you know, the rate at which we offload boats at various ports, as we, um, you know, find ways around the supply bottlenecks, it just means that we'll be able to maintain the recovery for for quite a period of time because you're effectively creating pent-up demand. And pent-up demand is, is you know, those are powerful, powerful, powerful drivers of uh, of economic activity once you're able to unleash that and we're clearly creating that in a number of industries across the world
0: right Uh, who would ever have imagined that supply chains would be the uh, sexy economic issue of the day
1: seriously
0: uh, so but but what you're actually saying then is that even though you know it's it's cast as a problem and it is a problem for you know Car dealerships that don't have cars to sell, and you know, clearly it's an issue. Uh, you're saying the upside to that is that it's sort of because it creates pent up growth over a longer period of time, that that the recovery gets spread out and has beneficial effects over a longer period of time instead of a shorter period.
1: Yeah, I mean that's 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 part of our thesis. I mean, you know, otherwise we'd have kind of growth of six or seven percent this year. You know in the three percent range next year and then maybe below three percent in 2023 so now we've got something that's more broadly spread out um you know obviously firms want to sell as much as they possibly can at any point in time so that I mean it is a frustrating development and and we would rather have growth stronger up front and kind of manage the consequences of lower growth going out the at the door or later on in the recovery um but you know, the, the, we're just we're just stuck with this this not stuck, but you know we're dealing with these these supply and logistical issues, which are, you know, they're they're very tricky and they're difficult to they're difficult to work around.
0: Right. And the, the other issue a lot of businesses are facing, and I think it's the case not just in Canada but elsewhere in the United States, is labor shortages. People looking for employees and not being able to find them. I don't know if that also tie if it's in some way connected to the to this supply chain issue because they don't have people they don't have the manpower to actually build the things that, that need to be built and shipped. So I don't know if that's the case or not. But even treating it as a separate issue, just of labor. You know, it's not like in Canada the unemployment rate is not what it was pre-pandemic. Uh, there is unemployment and yet, the, and yet there's this vast labor shortage particularly in hospitality, but I don't know, or retail. I don't know how extensive it is elsewhere. Is that something that you also see will just, you know, it'll solve itself over a period of time or is, a, is there some kind of structural issue at play here?
1: That that one in, in some sense is trickier. Um. So there's there are two dimensions to kind of the labor shortage impacts. One is uh, there clearly a, it's clearly contributing to the supply shortage. So for instance, if you go again look at trucker shortages in Canada or the U.S., I mean they are acute and they are slowing the ability of getting goods to market or getting goods to firms, and 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 that is without any question a key uh, a, you know a key bottleneck for the recovery. And to the extent that we've got the shortage and it's going to take a while to to unwind and and possibly. Keep, we might find it, need to find a way to deal with it. Uh, you know, with chronic shortages, um, that's an issue. Again, same on same on the food and accommodation side. I mean, anybody that's tried to go out to a restaurant or has been traveling around through the summer. will, I'm sure have come across a restaurant that says, you know, we're closed on Wednesdays because we don't have any staff, or you know, no lunches on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays because we're trying to we're trying to spare our staff. Um, that's that is, I think, much more temporary, much more tractable than a solution than 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 the trucking industry uh, largely because um, at the end of the day and, and firms won't like to do this but it, you know you can you can increase wages and in that will and send some people back into the industry now for the food and accommodation world what we know though is there's a significant proportion of folks that have left that industry and don't want to come back so even even in that world, you know, raising wages may not have the impact that it would in perhaps other industries, and, and there's solid evidence of that effect in the U.S. So that that sector is going to be a little bit more challenged. Um, but from a from a kind of a big picture macro perspective, you know, we are looking at an extremely unusual unusual situation in that the labor shortages. Um, so we've got, for instance, record numbers of job vacancies right now. If we look at the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses business barometer, so they every month they kind of pull firms and ask them, you know, what are tension points in various various segments, um, and labor shortages are the number one impact restraining their ability to to, to grow to produce, and at this is at, and at the highest reading ever, which you know is the kind of thing you would expect to see towards the end of a recovery, right? You've been growing for a number of years. You know, you've been tapping the labor market, and then at some point, there's just fewer and fewer workers to be able to base your expansion plans on. You don't see that at the beginning of a recovery. So we've got this very unusual unusual situation where the labor market is just struggling to find workers, um, you know, when we're still in the very early stages of what we expect to be, you know, a two and a half, three, perhaps longer year recovery. So, you know, we anticipate strong labor demand and we anticipate that wages are going to rise as a result. We anticipate it's going to be difficult for firms to find and, and, and retain workers for a number, of, a number of quarters just by virtue of the fact that we are starting with such, such a bizarre uh, cyclical position on the labor side relative to the economic side.
0: Yeah and then then there's the question the associated question of inflation which we haven't really talked about but uh it would seem inevitably that these the increasing and in, increases in wages that are going to come from these shortages will then be pushing up costs and pushing up inflation as well. Um we'll leave that aside for now. Just broadly then there were hints both of optimism and of some concern or trepidation on your part but overall your outlook on you know the next 6-9 months still thumbs up largely. Yeah, it's very difficult not to be very optimistic. You know, we're still
1: we're still looking at near 5% growth this year. I mean, we've only got a couple of quarters of data left to to register um next year by you know if the fundamentals impart on the economy as we expect them to you're looking very strong next year as well i mean not five percent but three and a half which is like double historical average uh so it's it's they're good times definitely good times but you no know, good times that probably come with a little bit more challenges in terms of being able to capitalize them than than perhaps would in the case two three years ago
0: okay Um, we could we could do a whole thing just on uh, on employment and jobs and some of those are what you say they're going to have trouble in the hospitality because people just don't want to come back they've decided they don't want to, and massive needs in healthcare at least like home care and personal service workers and so on, so all it's sort of the lower end of the wage scale. And I, and not scientific at all, but you get the sense there are just fewer people who are willing to do or want to do that kind of work. Uh, it seems like it could be a big challenge in the years to come. But uh, we'll leave that for now for your next time you come back and, uh, and talk to us. I just have one more bonus question for you. Uh, um, Evergrande, which is a Chinese real estate and many other things company in the news these days because of massive amounts of debt, a company that none of us have ever heard of, or most of us have never heard of before, and suddenly everybody's talking about it and the impact of this this one company could conceivably have on the entire world's economy. Can you just tell us what's what's the deal there? How is How is this one company suddenly at the forefront?
1: Well, I mean, Evergrande is, is, as you indicated, a huge real estate developer in China, along with a number of other things that had a very, very simple business model, which was, um, you know, uh, offer wealth management products to uh, uh, potential clients, so depositors, who would then reinvest those, so the company would then reinvest those in the housing market and in, in development. And so the massive builders of, of all kinds of homes um, in a range of Chinese cities, and a lot of those... Uh, properties turns out weren't, you know, likely to be sold. They were just just kind of a a bit of a Ponzi finance element to it to some extent. Um, So the company had a tremendous amount of debt to uh, its kind of retail clients. It borrowed tremendously on capital markets in China in particular, borrowed from a lot of Chinese banks, borrowed from other Chinese companies. So when the property market, when they started to have challenges in terms of, um, you know, executing on their on their construction uh, when they had challenges on the sell side of the business, uh, it made them it made repaying some of these debts extremely difficult. In fact, what we've seen over the last number of weeks, including last week and probably again this week, them unable to make certain certain bond payments, so potentially going to default. And given the size of this company, uh, it you know there's a potential for that to spook international markets, and it has already. Um, and then create a little bit of trauma going forward. Now, the thing to keep in mind though is, I mean, this still is occurring within China. Um, so it, it speaks to, you know, potential vulnerabilities in Chinese economy and China is the second largest economy in the world. So if something bad happens there, then it reduces Chinese growth and it reduces growth elsewhere in the world. So that's not a good thing. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is China largely has what we call a closed capital account. So it's, it, it's, it's you know, they've got restrictions on um, your ability to put money into China and for people to take money out of China. So that provides a bit of a break between any kind of financial problem in China and other parts of the world. Now It's not a complete break, but it's not, you know, it's not the same thing as a large firm in the U.S. having that kind of problem, which would kind of propagate around the world very much more directly than the never grand does so it's 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 certainly watching brief i mean brief it's 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 not a great situation um there's going to be a bit of trauma uh, but as with all things you know if you take a bit of a longer term perspective these things are always they always you know resolve themselves more or less traumatically but you know two years from now we won't be talking about evergrande or maybe even six months from now we won't be talking about evergrande to the extent that we are now
0: okay well thanks for enlightening me about evergrand uh, I appreciate that. Um, JF, always a pleasure to have you. I really appreciate you coming today. Uh, very interesting listening to your insights on all these topics. Thanks very much, Stephen. Pleasure to be on. Uh, I was joined today by Jean-François Perrault, Chief Economist at Scotiabank. You've been listening to the Perspectives podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time. Please see the Scotiabank website for legal disclaimers.